This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The Walton Family Foundation is, at its core, a family-led foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities. The foundation partners with others to make a difference in K-12 education, the environment, and its home region of northwest Arkansas and the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. We're living in a tumultuous and unprecedented time. The pandemic is causing loss, disruption, illness, grief, anxiety, and uncertainty. The killings of George Floyd and many others have fueled pain and anger around racial injustice. Psychologist Guy Winch says our emotional health is under assault. We have all lost our fundamental way of life to some degree or another. We are all dealing with massive uncertainty. We are all dealing with certain degrees of anxiety. You know, our emotional health is being impacted significantly. Today, he offers advice on how to deal with these shocks to the system. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute, which drives change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve our greatest challenges. Today's discussion is from the Murdoch Mind, Body, Spirit series held by Aspen Community Programs. This difficult time may have some of us experiencing diagnosable conditions like depression and anxiety. Others may be dealing with loneliness and grief, which aren't diagnosable. These conditions fit into what Guy Winch calls emotional health. How can we use the pandemic and social unrest to develop emotional resilience? When everything's so uncertain, what can we count on? How can we find useful coping mechanisms that address this unusual time? Winch speaks with Pam Bellick, who writes about health and science for the New York Times. They spoke on July 30th. Here's Bellick. And so it's really hard to think of a time that uh, has been more challenging to our emotional health than this one. And uh, that's why I think it's, it's really, uh, really wonderful that we get to talk to Dr. Guy Winch today. Um, I know, Guy, you've been very busy during this time seeing patients uh, virtually uh, consulting with with companies and and medical professionals, um, producing a, a podcast called Dear Therapist. So um, we're going to talk about how to address uh, issues with emotional health during during this very challenging time. And I thought I would start off with just give us a little bit of a definition of what you think emotional health is and and how to distinguish that from what people think of as mental health. I consider emotional health to be the non-diagnosable stuff, the aspects of our emotional well-being that doesn't fall into the category of psychopathology. So for example, clinical depression is a mental health issue. Uh, You know, an anxiety disorder is a mental health issue. But plenty of us experience depression that doesn't rise to the level of a diagnosable clinical depression. Plenty of us experience anxiety that's intermittent or fleeting. It doesn't rise to that level of a clinical diagnosis. That also includes things like loneliness, which is not diagnosable as a pathology at all. Uh, Experiences of failure, of rejection, of grief and loss that are not compounded. So there are many experiences we have on the day-to-day that impact um, our emotional health, our functioning, our productivity, how we feel, um, and our physical health, in fact, um, that don't rise to the level of 
actual diagnosis that you get in a, in a physician's office. And that's my distinction. Emotional health is about the non-diagnosable stuff. Mental health is about the diagnosable stuff. So how would you characterize what is happening uh, just on a societal level? And then we can go into some individual examples, but uh, to our society's emotional health right now. It was really interesting because I think that the percentage of people that are going to be physically impacted by COVID-19, um, for example, uh, that's one of the things that's going on in society, but the, the, the percentage of people that are going to have a physical impact, and there are going to be many of them, but it's going to be a small percentage of society, but practically all of society, practically 100% of us have been and will be impacted in terms of our emotional health. And so it is something that is incredibly broad at the moment. It is something we are all experiencing. We have all lost our fundamental way of life to some degree or another. We are all dealing with massive uncertainty. We are all dealing with certain degrees of anxiety. There are these, we're all dealing, you know, with social distancing and quarantine. So loneliness has, has risen significantly. That we are all being impacted um, by, you know, our emotional health is being impacted significantly by these events. Now, when we add in the, 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 the social justice movement and, and things like that, which are actually really, really important. So that's a movement that's actually extremely important. It, it, I, I hope it goes on for a very long time. The only issue with it is that it's very difficult, especially for people of color, to be engaged in that movement without it reactivating all the wounds that justify the presence of the movement in the first place. So it's a very necessary yet terribly painful process for many people of color and for, you know, for people of, who are not, but certainly for people of color. And there's no other way to do that except to experience that pain as you do. So again, emotional health right now is a bit under assault all over the place. So I wanna sort of unpack a lot of different aspects of that. But one thing that struck me about what you were saying is that, um, one thing that I think is so unusual around this about this time is that all of those different kinds of insults and and shocks to the system are are interacting with each other. So you know, if you um, have sort of a, a grief experience, you've lost a family member or or a, or a loved one, then that's that's a really serious situation for you. But you may be able to continue on with other aspects of your life, right, and stay kind of uh, grounded or 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 take uh, take um, you know solace from other things in your life that are going well. Um, and but what we're having right now is that people are are undergoing that grief and loss um, at the same time that they are uh, having to navigate uh, staying at home, not seeing their friends. Maybe they're having to take care of uh, kids at home um, and juggle their jobs at the same time. Maybe they've lost their jobs, um, you know, and then of course there's just sort of all of this uncertainty in the world um, and in the country uh, that's kind of overlaying all of this. So are you finding, are you hearing from people um, that, they're, that they are, are, are finding this sort of perfect storm of all of these different things at once? It is a perfect storm in many ways because so many of our natural or traditional coping mechanisms have been taken away. And one of those, for example, is social support. Yes, we can get it over Zoom. It's not the same as getting an actual hug 
from someone when you're in distress, when you're grieving, you know, almost all cultures have rituals of grieving that involve community support because that is so important. Now, most of that is, is virtual. Um, and, uh, and when people are bonding together, um, it, it's, it's often virtual. So in protests, for example, people are meeting in the streets and they're protesting for that purpose and, and they're usually wearing masks because we're not seeing a lot of outbreaks among, among protesters, which is, which is wonderful and amazing. Um, but when you go home and when you see your neighbors and when you, you know, just, I, I was talking to someone the other day that, you know, that you often, even in your office, you would go and walk somewhere and somebody would come up and they would shake your hand, they would rub your shoulder, they might give you a little pat on the back, all those small little touch points, literal touch points, aren't there anymore. We also use entertainment as distraction. You know, we can't go to movies, we can't go to shows, we, you know, we can go to some restaurants, but there's anxiety associated. Even with that, we can't travel, we can't plan to, uh, you know, certain kinds of travel, you know, are difficult to do. So anything we would do like, oh, this is a difficult period, but I'm looking forward to blank happening in the future, kind of hard to look forward to blank happening in the well, blank actually is what we look what we see in the future when we look we just don't know what it's going to be so not only we're under all these stresses but our coping mechanisms um the traditional ones many of them have been stripped away and that leaves us then with a need to come up with other coping mechanisms or to use ones we are typically not that reliant on or to to really uh, dig deep and and look for emotional resilience within ourselves to manage within ourselves at times we might not have had to do that before. So give us some examples of some coping mechanisms uh, that apply that we can that we can grasp onto and use during during this time, what are you telling your your patients and 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 the people um, who you're who you're consulting with about the coping mechanisms that they can use? So I'm, I'm a silver lining kind of person. I'm uh, here's a, uh, I'll admit that um, I'm an optimist, and I see silver linings. And so, for example, the fact that we can't distract ourselves by doing stuff, we can't go to the movies, we can't go to a show, we can't go to a concert. Um, we're forced to talk. And so, in fact, while that, uh, that one aspect is taken away, we are actually connecting more. Many people are finding they're having deeper conversations and turning to people for support, indeed via phone or video, but they have the time to have these conversations which they might not have had before. So and in, in some ways, uh, you know, the, the ability to get physical uh, um, you know, uh, comforts uh, has been taken away, but we are actually connecting emotionally sometimes more deeply with, with people because we can actually uh, call them. If there was a wake or a, or a shiver or something where, where, where 30 people would come and now they cannot, that's 30 phone calls people are making that they're having these touch points and, and it's actually going deeper for some people. Um, so, so that's something to really consider that it's a time that we can really connect with one another emotionally. It's also a time that we need to think of, well, okay, there's so much instability. What can we count on? Well, we can count on the relationships we have. We can count on the values we have. And I'll just say this, for, you know, the, the social justice movement, um, why I'm, I'm, I'm heartened 
uh, is that the conversations I'm having with people are very different than the conversations I had uh, five, six years ago, four or five years ago when, when Ferguson uh, was, was happening, for example, because I, then people were talking about that as news. And now almost everyone I'm speaking with is saying, I've actually had to do some thinking. I've actually had to look deep within. I've actually had to really think about this issue. And it's not just about as we know, it's not just about not being racist, it's about being anti-racist. It's about, you know, the, the people are going deeper with this, which is making me more hopeful that, okay, maybe things will stick this time. Maybe there'll actually be some movement because people are actually taking it seriously enough. They're stuck at home, they have the time, and, it's, and, it, and they're doing the right thing by really asking themselves tough questions rather than just externalizing that. I was thinking exactly that uh, 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 this morning, actually, and um, as I was um, watching part of John Lewis's funeral, um, that, um, that, that one source of, uh, I consider myself a, an optimist as well, I, I guess a sort of uh, optimistic realist, um, and I think one source of, um, of, uh, of, of hope um, that I see not just what you're talking about on a kind of personal level, but um, this sense that so many people in society are kind of coming out um, publicly either at protests or making, you know, sort of public statements and, and really joining together, um, you know, across uh, racial lines and, and, and class lines to, to say this is an issue that really needs to be addressed and, we're, and, and we all need to address and we need to take responsibility for our failings in this area. Um, you know, to me, I was reading, uh, just to uh, speak again of John Lewis, he wrote a, a, an essay that he asked my employer, the New York Times, to publish today, the day of his funeral. And it's beautiful, everybody should read it. Um, but uh, one of the things that he says is that he was inspired in his last days by um, just that, just that uh, people were millions of people, you know, coming together uh, out of simple compassion and a desire for, uh, for equality and, and dignity for everyone. And so, yeah, to me, that's something I think people can draw on. Yeah, I want to add to that. When I, I, I work with a lot of different companies that, you know, when I, in one week, I speak with three different CEOs and every single, and each one of them says to me, I'm, we're, we're trying to figure out what to do systemically here. We don't just want to do something that will check the box. We're literally trying to understand where the issues are and what systems we can put in place that will last past my uh, uh, role here. Once I leave, I want things to be in place that will last. All three of these people were white um, and, and that's where their thoughts were. That's what heartens me. And I'm not saying that's everyone. Uh, it's unfortunately not yet everyone, but hopefully they're enough that traction will really be made. What do you advise um, people uh, who say they wanna do something concrete, you know, like that? Um, and, 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 you know, in a, maybe you can connect it to the sort of sense of emotional purpose and 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 um, uh, resilience and and the desire to make you know kind of positive change. 
So first of all, so for people who recognize, and I hope that's most people, that indeed we have a problem with systemic racism, that's again, by definition, systemic. So it's not about just an external thing. We have to go deep into these systems. It does, you know, and, and if you connect to that, and if you can really find, uh, you know, that then, then you ask yourself, okay, what can I do in my own personal life, in terms of my influence, in terms of my allying, um, in, in any kind of way. And then you can take action. There should be some real, A, satisfaction and sense of purpose in what you're doing. This is about, you know, it, we all would like, not everyone, but I, there are plenty of people who say, oh, I want to leave the world a better place. Really, here's how. Here's something you can actually do that will actually give you that feeling that you get to feel good about it. And I'm not saying do it to feel good, but if you can do it to do good, and usually doing good does make us feel good. It's a psychological benefit we tend to overlook that when we have an act of kindness, it's the person who does the act of kindness that benefits often more than the person toward whom that act was directed. So here, really start thinking. And I'm just going to give one example. Um, I have a friend who's a neuroscientist, and he said to me, he's a person of color, but he's not black. And he said to me, um, I do not have one. I run a lab. There's not one black person in my lab. And I, uh, and I, and I, an editor of a journal, there's not one black person on the editorial board. And the problem is, there are just very few black people in neuroscience. You go to conferences, they're just not there. So when he and his team were sitting around thinking, what do we do? What they realized was, well, if there are not enough black people in neuroscience, that's what we should do. And so they started a mentoring program for undergraduates to find students of color and, and black students, perhaps especially, and to help mentor them so that there was over time. And this is not going to happen tomorrow. This is undergraduates. They then have to go get mentored and want to get PhDs and then get them and only them. But that's that's what systemic means, that you start it from a root so that it grows uh, in a way that really takes time but benefits um, and, and changes the actual uh, you know, issue at the core, which in this case was just not enough uh, uh, people. So you have to be creative and you have to be, and, and the, the most important thing is like, don't get tired of this because this is something people have been living for hundreds of years. They don't have the privilege of getting tired of it. So we shouldn't either. Um, do you have suggestions for how people can keep themselves focused on it and keep themselves from not uh, getting tired, as you say? Um, I think you're right that, you know, with many, many um, movements, social justice movements, um, one of the things that, that, that can be a stumbling block is people lose interest. This doesn't seem to be happening so far with with the racial justice movement, which is, you know, one of the very, very um, heartening things. But I wonder if you have suggestions for people who are uh, who find themselves sort of turning away or, or losing energy, uh, uh, you know, perhaps because they're focused on their own very real personal issues, um, especially at this time. So in, in times of uh, loss and grief, which is what we're experiencing, uh, one of the things which are most curative for experiences of loss and grief is to find meaning in what's happening. Because the way we are wired, if we can understand and bestow meaning on an event that is difficult and stressful, uh, tragic, uh, 
terrible even, um, then we come out of it more resilient. We come out of it in a better place. That ability to put it in a context so that when we think of our lives and the narrative of our lives, it, it, it is woven in as a pivotal point that taught us something, that gave us something. And we are all going through, as I said earlier, uh, significant amounts of stress, and we're all dealing with losses, as like loss of our basic way of life, loss of certain freedoms, all of that. Um, and so it actually would be a benefit to us if we can feel like, yes, COVID was terrible. It went on for however long, we don't know how long. But in that time, I devoted myself to a cause and to a purpose that I felt really moved forward. Then in five years time or in 10 years time, when we look back, this will not be the time of, oh, that terrible quarantine time of COVID. This will be that time that we made that incredible change happen. And our whole perspective of this period, and it's going to be a long period, will shift from one of hardship to one of achievement and triumph. That is what we can benefit from if we connect to it with a sense of purpose and keep at it. It strikes me that that is a very um, important thing also to convey to our children who are, um, you know, uh, experiencing this kind of disruption you know, for the first time. I mean, this is just, um, this is just going, this is just transformative for the world that they, that they knew. They can't be in school. Um, they can't go out. All of their activities are circumscribed. Um, there's, uh, you know, all, all uh, there's a, a lot of uh, anxiety and worry around them. Are you talking to people, you know, either, I don't know if you're, you're counseling children themselves or are you talking to people who have children um, about how, how to um, help their children navigate all of this? Yeah, so look, talk about a teaching moment, right? So, so, so here's why this is a teaching moment for parents, because this is happening to everyone and the kids are highly aware that this is happening to everyone and to them and to their parents. They are looking then to their parents to see how does one deal with this kind of thing. And the teaching moment for parents here is that you have an opportunity, it's not a moment actually, it would be nice, but the, the teaching period we're in is that you have an opportunity to model for your child how one deals with hardship, how one deals with uncertainty, and that doesn't mean that you have to have no feelings about it. The opposite is true. You have to have all the feelings you have, but you have to be able to talk with them, talk about them, and share them with your children in, again, the right doses based on the age of the child. But to validate for your children, for example, that it's okay to feel uncertain and to feel anxious when there's something uncertain and anxiety-provoking anxiety -provoking happening is, is a good teaching, uh, to say to kids, yes, I know you're sad that you can't see your friends. It's actually okay to feel sad. And why don't we just sit with that sadness? Because I feel sad, I can't see mine. Let's sit together with the sadness. We don't have to run away from it. We can learn to tolerate it because life is full of sad moments, just as it's full of happy ones. And we don't have to be fearful of the sad moments. We just have to teach ourselves that as unpleasant as they might be, we can tolerate them and they will pass. And then you demonstrate that 
for your children. So to validate that difficult emotions, that sad emotions, painful emotions, are not things we should shy away from because we cannot. You know, you can't switch off a feeling. That would be nice. We cannot. So it's not something to shy away from, but something to learn that you can manage it. It's not fun, but you can manage it. And knowing that is the definition, really, of what builds resilience. You know, just to sort of uh, uh, pivot almost from the opposite end of sadness, um, uh, you know, anybody who's, you know, watched uh, some of your videos can tell that you have you have a good sense of humor. Um, and and I, I, I wonder how you feel that, um, you know, humor and sort of a recognition perhaps of of, of the absurdity of things uh, can be used as a therapeutic tool or as a sort of a, a tool toward resiliency. Do you have, you know, examples of, uh, of that, of, of, of encouraging people to, you know, to, to laugh when they can or, or, or to, you know, find, find humor in things when they can? So I'll, I'll use an example from my own life. I, um, when, when the pandemic started, I uh, decided to, to uh, leave my, my home in, in Manhattan and visit with my identical twin brother. The, the idea of uh, not being able to get to him or not being able to see him if something happened was not acceptable to me. And into quarantine, I went. I'm coming from New York City. It was at the time the epicenter. So uh, I'm in quarantine for 14 days. You know, it, it was a stressful time. It was a difficult time. And you're truly just in a room. You know, you're, you're isolated. The whole goal is to keep you away from people. And uh, we, my brother and I and our family, we, we tend to cope with humor. And so by the fifth day, I, I, uh, I, I went to shower and I came back and there was a customer service uh, questionnaire um, uh, on my pillow that my brother wrote, which I actually posted on my Instagram account, um, evaluating the quarantine services that they were providing. Because when you're in quarantine, if people aren't clear, you can't go to the kitchen. You have to ask for everything, even if it's a glass of water. So, and you feel terrible. You are like making people run around and get you food and water, like, because you can't, you can't do it yourself uh, when you're quarantined among other people. And so, you know, he was asking about the services and, and he was asking, just, it was a very funny questionnaire and it just really lightened uh, the mood. Um, and I think that humor has a real place in, in uh, just to get technical for a minute, it, it's about emotional distancing. When we are able to laugh about something, it creates a distance from it psychologically and emotionally that gives us a little bit of buffer. So um, the thing is, you have to be careful about the humor being appropriate because in difficult times, there's a lot of uh, feelings that can be hurt if the humor is not. But the benefit of it, and especially if you're in an environment where you know the people and you know what will fly and what won't, is that if you can laugh, if you can joke about things every once in a while, that doesn't mean you're not taking them seriously. It means you are breaking the tension um, laughter in terms of evolution um, is signifies, used to be a way to signify that um, the emergency or the, the alarm is over. And it's the release of that tension that causes the, the expression physically of laughter. So you see an old lady, uh, you know, like trip and, 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 and about to fall down, but the minute she stabilizes herself, it's like, oh, then you can laugh about it because, oh, she's okay. Um, and if she weren't, it wouldn't be funny, you know, at all. So Humor is something we should deploy because it actually gives us emotional distance. If we can, it gives us that buffer 
And it reminds us also that even amongst the most terrible um, situations, there's still room. It's part of our humanity to laugh. It's part of, our, of what makes us people because it's a social construct. Um, it, it's a good reminder of that. And so when you can, I'm all for it. I wonder if uh, during this time there has been, I mean, you've, you've, you've worked with lots of different uh, uh, patients, you know, people with lots of different problems over the years. You've been doing this for a long time. Um, but I wonder if during this moment that we're in, if you've had any uh, patients coming to you with problems that you couldn't solve or that you found particularly challenging um, and that you had to do something, you know, different or learn something different um, so that you could help them effectively. So remember a few minutes ago when I said that we need to be able to teach our children to sit with difficult feelings? It, it, that's an experience I've had because I, I have had patients who um, live alone in, in Manhattan. I mean, I practice in Manhattan, so most of my people are there, not all, um, who, have, uh, who are at high-risk groups, who have been isolated in their homes, in their small apartments sometimes, for now four months. They haven't seen a friend. They haven't touched another human being, and they are going out of their minds. They are so lonely and so distraught, and they don't see an end in sight. They're in high-risk groups. Even their doctors are saying, don't, even with masks, don't right now, because you're, you're really in a high-risk group. And they are in such a difficult place. And, and, and what, is the, what is the help I can give them? Um, I mean, yes, I can allow them to vent, and I can be supportive, and I can validate, and I can try and help them figure out some alternatives that might do a little bit of something. But truly, they're just in very, very difficult situations. Or they've lost their jobs, or they've lost a loved one, and they can't even go see them. Um, in one case, it's, a, it's a, a single mother who had a baby. She She's by herself with the baby. She can't take the baby to show her family in the baby. It, it's so, so difficult. So I have had to learn to sit with feelings sometimes as a therapist that I'm not familiar with, feeling truly helpless sometimes and, and truly like what I'm offering doesn't seem like enough. It's not a feeling I'm that used to, but I've had to get used to just given the reality that I just don't truly don't know what more I can offer. I speak to a lot of other therapists. We are in the same, in the same boat. They're just objective limitations. So they're, they're not that many and there are, there are easings now. And, and, and so some people can venture out, some people still cannot, and we don't know for how much longer. Um, but it, it, it's, I, I feel absolutely horrible for some people. And, and these are people who can afford to see a therapist. So they're in better shape than most. And, and, and I then feel even worse for, for so many millions of others who are in such a difficult place at the moment. Yeah. Um, I can see where that would be, would be a real challenge. Are you, for those people, are you, um, you know, seeing them more or are you, uh, I don't know if you, if you're, if it makes sense to sort of encourage them to connect with others in their situation, you know, are you doing sort of groups or um, uh, what is the. I, I'm not, uh, you know, groups on zoom. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a heavy lift. It's like, I'm not, I'm not sure that's the most, but, um, but I am, look, there, there are, uh, you know, I, they get Zoom fatigue, some of them, because they're working. So they, they but um, I am encouraging them to to connect with friends 
and do something like put on a TV show on each of the households and just watch it. You don't have to talk to each other. But if you keep the video screen on so that you can see it as you're watching the show and once in a while you can make comments to one another or cook together. Um, you know, you're each cooking, but share a recipe. Um, or, you know, like there are all kinds of creative solutions people have come up with to feel connected without just talking, because it's the talking that's very tiring. If you spent your entire day doing it, you and you're calling a friend, you feel like I have to have some two hours of material to talk about if I'm going to hang out with him. But no, you don't. Just watch a show, cook. Sometimes just have it on and go about your business. Clean the place if you want. But it, you will feel when you look over and they're saying, oh, I didn't notice you had a new uh, rug over there. It, it will feel a little bit more like a visit. And so there's all these creative ways that, you know, the minute I hear it from one person, I can offer it to, to others. And there, are, and there are all kinds of ideas that people are having about how to feel a little less disconnected. I just want to say one thing quickly about that loneliness. The issue with it is that it's extraordinarily dangerous. What people don't realize is that the, the chronic loneliness raises our risk of an early death by anywhere from 26 to 30 something percent, depending on the study. It is the equivalent damage-wise to our health of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. In other words, loneliness will kill you in the long term. It's a very, very dangerous thing for us physically because it, it really does a number on our immune system and our cardiovascular system. Like it, it, it has a, a ton of damage. Most people don't realize that. They think it's just emotionally painful and difficult, which it is, but it's also physically very, very dangerous. And so this is a tricky time because so many people are experiencing you know, surges of, and, and loneliness in ways they never did before because they're truly, truly isolated. And so to the extent that you can just find, even if it's an acquaintance, and find a night where you can just turn on the TV or, or, or watch John Lewis's funeral and, and, and just, you know, watch that, cry together, just do something that feels connective. It's a very, very important thing to do, even if it doesn't feel like enough, but it's something it, to mitigate the true feelings of disconnection. It, it, these are the actions that are very important to take. This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. Everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed, no matter where you live, what you look like, or how modest your beginnings. But how do you create access to that opportunity so people have a chance to discover their promise and reach their full potential? The Walton Family Foundation believes in the power of opportunity to transform lives, build strong communities, and protect a natural world that sustains us all. For more than three decades, the foundation has been inspired by those who never see a challenge without striving to overcome it, those whose inventions are driven by necessity, the dreamers, the doers, those who are closest to the problem because they are closest to the solution. Opportunity thrives in healthy environments. It withers in ailing ones. Opportunity should never be limited by geography. No one ever solved a big problem by thinking small. It's never easy to overcome difficult challenges. It takes time and steady resolve. One thing is true. Everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. Um, 
for as many people probably who are facing challenges with loneliness, there are probably many others who are facing challenges with togetherness, right? We're, we're all, you know, uh, uh, with uh, a, lot, a lot of people are with, with, their, with their families or um, uh, in close quarters, um, uh, you know, 24 seven. Um, and I know that you have, you know, written about um, uh, relationship issues, and um, I wonder what you're hearing from people um, who are navigating their, you know, their marriages or their or their or their family relationships during this time, and how you're advising them. Well, relationships are very strained when you're in a house with people, um, and you know, it's nice to visit with family, but if you're stuck there <laughs> for four months and, and couples who, you know, uh, used to go to work for eight, 10 hours a day are now seeing each other 24 seven, um, it's gonna put a strain on a lot of relationships. Here's what you need to do truly. First of all, and I'm gonna use this term lightly, but I mean, over communicate. And by over communicate, I mean, do it to beyond the point you actually think is necessary because it's actually necessary to do a lot. Um, we, we tend to have a feeling that the more we know someone, the less we have to ask them what they're thinking, because we can guess. We know them well enough, and they should be able to tell what I'm thinking. It's an assumption that we see with couples who have been together for a very long time. Uh, it's called perspective taking, right? Taking the other person's perspective, getting an idea of, of where they're at. Um, couples who are together for a very long time are very bad at this. Um, for one reason, they don't think it's necessary to actually think through, hmm, how is she feeling? Oh, what does he want? Because, oh, I know how she's feeling. She said it five years ago, I recall still. That doesn't allow a lot of room for change or for growth or for, uh, you might feel differently day to day or in a situation that we're in. So by over-communicating, I mean, ask a lot of questions. Uh, have a lot of family meetings, even if it's just two of you, to talk about how is this going? Do we need more space for one another? Who needs the privacy of the room? today, or with this many people, maybe we can rotate so at least one person gets a couple of hours of privacy a day to talk to some friends in private or to do certain things in private. If you have teenagers, that's probably especially important for them because they love to be independent and if they're not able to go out in some places still not, then it's gonna be very, very difficult. You know, for, for couples, the division of labor uh, is something that needs to be an ongoing discussion because conditions change and, and requirements change and demands change. And so you can't just go with old agreements in new circumstance, it requires communication. So I'm saying over communicate because most people feel like, no, we're probably doing enough of it. Feel like you're doing a little too much of it and then you're probably on target. So that's, that's one thing that you, you have to do. And the other thing I just, it's a very simple thing, but let people in your household know when you're in a bad place. If you, if you come up in the morning and go, hey, look, I'm just, you know, I'm in just a really bad mood today, but I just, I just wanted you to know, I'll try and step out of it and just know, or I'm just feeling really irritable, just to let you know. Then the next time you say something sharp or you have a certain expression, they won't think, is it me? And what's wrong with them? And what's wrong with me? And they'll, okay, no, they're in a bad mood. And then you can say, if somebody says that to you, do you need space or would it be helpful if we actually hung out? You tell me what's best for you right now. Ask questions. And so, that's the over communicating to like disclose more problem solve more um you know bring it to a forum even if it's just two people but certainly if there's a family then to everyone here are the issues let's put our heads together and figure out what's the best we can do we're not going to resolve them because they're just issues but what's the best we can do 
That sounds like really good advice. Um, I wonder, um, uh, I know some people who are also kind of uh, trying to create, you know, kind of new rituals for themselves or new activities um, that they can do together, um, you know, doing puzzles when they never did puzzles before or, um, uh, you know, binge watching something when they never had time to watch anything together before, that kind of thing. Is that, does that, uh, is that something that you're, you'd advise as well? So first of all, if you have the time, um, then yes, absolutely. Because look, for some of us, this has given us a lot of time. I'm, I'm not one of those people, um, and, and there's some blessings to that. And there's, and there's sometimes where I look around and I go like, I'm actually very jealous that I don't get to have my, my project for Corona. Um, but um, there are a lot of people who, if they're not working or whatever it is, that they actually have a lot of time. Um, and then you know, it's an opportunity here. Um, because once this is over, and it's going to probably be a while, but once it is and life resumes in, in full swing, you're going to look back and you're going to go like, wow, I had all that time, why didn't I do something with it? And so there are two types of people. There, there are people who thrive on being productive and who don't do well when they're not. And there are people who, when they force themselves to be too productive, get overwhelmed and stressed. And you need to know what type you are. Because if you need, if you do better when you're productive, you should be, and you should find the projects and find ways and find collaborations. Um, and if you're the type that gets overwhelmed if it's too much going on, then binge away and and enjoy yourself. I I think that you know uh, necessity is the mother of invention, and I think that um, I'm I'm eager to see um, how many inventions, how many contraptions, how many uh, advances. Uh, will come out of this period. I'll give you one example. Right now, my laptop is on a box because if it's on the desk where my uh, keyboard is, I'll be doing this all day and that's not good for my neck. Um, Right now, that's my solution. I'm assuming that there'll be some generations of computers coming down the line soon that have some kind of solution for people who are doing mostly video conversations uh, and, and, and there'll be some technological advances there. There'll be ways for people to connect via video in ways that are not built into the software right now, which is a software made for business. Um, and so th- there are going to be all kinds of interesting inventions people come up with and interesting ideas, interesting social and parties and, and different things that will come out of this. And it'll be interesting to see what those are. Well, that is a really optimistic um, note um, and comes at a very good time because we are about to go to our audience questions. Um, just before we do, is there anything else that you would like to that you would like to add or or or? Yes, or- one thing I would like to add, and and this is to people who really are experiencing a lot of hardship uh, emotionally in this time, and and people are experiencing emotional hardship unrelated to whatever physical, financial, or other kinds of hardship they might be having. Know this that once we get through this, what will surprise you when you look back is how resilient you actually were. Because resilient is built, you know, resilience is built by hardship, by overcoming it, by by getting through it, even if it's not gracefully, but getting through it builds resilience. And and that is something that we are all doing whether we plan to or not. And so Comfort yourself by knowing that however hard it is, if you just get through, you will be stronger at the end of it by definition uh, than you are now. And that, and that should be some comfort. 
Crystal Logan, Vice President of Community Programs and Engagement at the Aspen Institute, reads questions from the online audience. Thank you both so much. This is really, really helpful and really, really great conversation. We, are, we do have a lot of questions from the audience. The first one is, what do you offer as a practice or response to Black pain related to the micro and macro aggressions we are facing daily? What do I offer to, to people who are experiencing that? Yes. What I can, and I said this a little bit earlier, that, um, that there is no way for a social justice movement to not speak about the injustice, to not even activate the feelings people have about all the injustice that has happened. It's this, this, this dual-edged sword that to, to make that progress, you have to experience and live um, through the pain that it has caused, that without this movement, you maybe could push aside and not experience as acutely all the time, and now you're probably experiencing it as acutely all the time, and you're so sensitized to the microaggressions, especially, and, 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 especially and, and, and the larger ones, but even to the microaggressions, because this time sensitizes us even more, and sensitizes you, I'm, I'm not a person of color, sensitizes you even more to those things. And so it's very unfortunate. There's no way to get through that gauntlet without that uh, pain, because it's, it's, it's all around us. And the only comfort then that I can offer is that we are going towards something. There's a true feeling, I hope, that we, this is different, and that the pain that you're feeling now um, and it's a terrible burden, and it, and it's so wrong that after everything, now you actually have to feel this pain to fix something that you've been pained about for so long in the first place. I mean, it's 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 truly terrible. But try and comfort yourselves with the idea that that there is a true movement now behind you that is is much more expansive, much deeper, and hopefully much much more impactful. That something will in fact come out of it. So at least your pain will be able to start diminishing at some point. And it won't be that soon, I'm afraid even, but it will at some point. And the, but your children and, and grandchildren will be in a better world, uh, hopefully. That's the best comfort I can offer. But I, I understand that it feels outrageous to have to experience the pain and then to fix it, have to go through it so acutely. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Our next question is, can you address the emotion of anger during this extremely stressful time? Where's the line between normal anger and anger as a more pathological symptom of a mental disorder? Well, that's, that's a loaded question. There. Mm -hmm. um, so here's the thing about anger. Um, our, our experience of it is separate from our expression of it. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, you might experience a lot of anger People might experience two, two people might experience the same depth of, of outrage and anger, but express it or react to it very, very differently. The pathology comes in in terms of the reaction, not in terms of the experience, because some people can be have a threshold that's lower and can react overtly in a pathological way to anger, but it's a lesser experience of anger than somebody who's experiencing more of it, but containing it in a certain way. So just to be clear that the, the, the pathology comes in the, the, the expression of the anger, the inability to contain it. And, and somebody who has an issue with, um, with anger, uh, there are things you can do to contain it because it is not pleasant for the person who's angry either. It's certainly less pleasant for the people around them if they're expressing that behaviorally in unproductive or pathological 
uh, ways. And so if it's, you know, if, if, if there's somebody listening to this who, who feels that they're not in control of their anger, then, then seek help while the consequences of that are not extreme before you react in a way um, that, that's going to be problematic. Because in times of stress, which we're in, our thresholds drop. And so what we could contain before, we're now a little less able to contain and it might erupt externally in a way that's problematic. So seek help if you need. Wow, that was a great answer, really clear. And um, thank you for that. Our next question is, um, this person asks, I was wondering what advice you would give for those of us who are struggling with letting go of situations we cannot control. Obviously COVID is a situation we are unable to control, but do you have techniques that can be used in day-to-day -day life experiences? Yeah, so, so this issue of control is actually a really important issue because it, it is something that less control we feel we have, the more anxious we're likely to feel, the more helpless we're likely to feel. So actually um, finding ways to assert control when we don't feel we have enough of it is a very important thing to do. So I'm, I'm glad this person you know, asked, that, asked that question. It doesn't have to be apples to apples. In other words, we don't have control over COVID. But if you can focus, for example, on the things you do have control over or things you think you might not, but you could assert control over, that can help mitigate that. So one thing I would suggest is just very practically, make a list of all the things in your life over which you still do have control. And A, just as a reminder, look, here's all the things that I can control in my day to day. And then make a list of the things you don't have control over that are actually relevant to your day to day life. So COVID writ large is relevant, but what does that actually mean? You don't have control over if you have to get into the elevator perhaps with someone, yes you do, take the stairs. Or I don't have control over, you know, somebody will, you know, walk across the street, walk across to me with a, without a mask, cross the street if you see someone. In other words, there are a lot of situations in which we think, oh, I don't really have control, but we could assert some. And even that some will help comfort us and will help mitigate and buffer us a bit in the face of things like anxiety or helplessness and other kinds of feelings that can come when we don't feel we have enough control. Our next question is, knowing there's a lot we can do at home to promote emotional wellness, such as connecting to a virtual exercise class, what advice do you have to muster the motivation? So uh, here's the thing about motivation. The person who asked that question clearly has the motivation. It's the follow through that we usually um, lack. And we tend to put that down to willpower or motivation, but often it's about habit and often it's about distraction. And so one of the things that I say to people, and again, it's gonna sound really ridiculous, but trust me, this is important, is okay, you, 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 you have an online exercise class. Did you um, clear space in your calendar? For it, did you actually put it in your calendar as here's what I'm doing from nine to 10, I'm taking this class, or was it just aspirational of like, I'll take it sometime. And that's not how habits get formed. Habits get formed by very ritualistic, consistent um, feedback and reinforcement. So if you take that class Monday and Wednesdays and Fridays at the same time, and you get up in the morning and the first thing you do is you put on your sneakers because you know you're gonna take that class, so don't say, oh, now I have to go put on my sneakers. Nope, they're on, you're good to go. In other words, you try and remove all the speed bumps in your way. Um, two quick things. There are people who get motivated by looking at how far they've come, and there are people who get motivated by looking at how far they've yet to go. You need to know which one you are. So, uh, you know, if you're the person who gets motivated because 
you know, you've already accomplished a lot, then do the exercise in the morning. If you're somebody who, who does it better at night because then you've freed yourself and now you can devote to it, do that. If you don't know who you are, trial and error will show you. Try one system for one week, another for the other week, see which was more productive and easier for you. Our next question is, mindful meditation is increasingly being recommended to me by psychologists to counteract the stress of COVID. What do you think? Is this more of a long-term tool or could it be helpful in small doses? Uh, first of all, yes. And it should be a daily practice, long-term, unrelated to COVID. It's just useful. It, it is a way of quieting the mind it is a way of, of training. It's like a training a muscle. Uh, it's of training your mind to be uh, free of distraction. You keep bringing your mind back by paying attention to your breathing. Uh, and that's just one form of meditation. There are other forms of meditation, um, but, but all that's what they do. They kind of bring the attention back. Mindfulness meditation also has this feature of being non-evaluative. So like if you have a thought, you like, oh, you have a thought, something that angered you, you just say to yourself, I had an angry thought about my ex. And you let it go and you come back to your breathing. And what that does is it literally trains your physiological responses to be a little less active and to be a little less, you know, uh, uh, sensitive. And so it helps with concentration, with attention. There's a, there's a, a whole load of benefits associated with mindfulness meditation. That's why all the psychologists are saying, yes, you should do it, because now there's a lot of research behind it. So yes, you should do it. Mm -hmm. Great. Our next question is, a friend of mine has written a book about writing as therapy in hard times. What role do you think writing can play in coping with difficult times? Uh, it's called you know, bibliotherapy. Uh, you're friend wrote a book, that's terrific. There, there are quite a few uh, books out there and, um, and they all are based on this principle that um, writing is a form of, of expression that's different from verbal. It, it, it comes from different areas um, in our brain. And so you're actually, uh, and there's some people, for example, who are great writers, but verbal expression is not their strong suit. They can articulate something in writing in a much better way, much clearer way than they can um, you know, uh, in, a, in a spoken way. So actually journaling about your thoughts and your feelings allows you, if you do it with the purpose of not just, you know, vomiting onto the page, but trying to understand them, trying to make order in them, trying to gain perspective or insight um, from them, it's a wonderfully useful tool. It's very, very cheap. And, and, it's, and it's something that you can do in great privacy. So um, I'm, I'm all for it. Great. Our next question is, now that many of us are working from home, can you talk about some things we can do to separate time working and ruminating about work and personal time? Um, I'm going to suspect that this is somebody who's seen my most recent TED Talk, which is about how not to ruminate about work when you're home. Um, and if not, good for you, uh, but I beat you to it because I already uh, did that talk. But, um, but the idea is that when we don't have um, a psychological, a physical barrier between work and home, we have to create a psychological one. And that means that we really have to be super clear about when our day ends. And there's some people that say, well, I can't really because I'm on call or that an email might arrive, perhaps. But you can stop working at a certain hour, designate an hour once a night to check emails for 15 minutes and respond to them. And that's it. And, and maybe some people can't, but that's a small, small minority. Most of us can have a stop time and must. And in that stop time, you have to ritualize the transition. Um, I announce it to the household. 
We, that's our tradition here. When you're done, we announce, I'm done, and somebody else will go, shh, I'm on a call, fine. But we say, I'm done, and, 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 and it's an announcement to ourselves more than to the other people. I have a patient who literally leaves his home, drives around the block just to mimic the coming back home, and, and the kids are bored by it. But at first they were thrilled, like, daddy's home, and they would run, but at this point, like, you just left. We're not going to do that every night. But for, but for him, it's very... It's very useful. You can, I advocate changing clothes at the end of the workday, changing the lighting, putting on music, changing the vibe of it. Um, and to understand that rumination, like just a, the, the hamster wheel of thinking and stuff, you know, the stewing and obsessing about work in the non-work hours literally prevents you from recovering and recharging from work, which was a, is an essential Thing. People who ruminate about work too much have sleep problems, eat unhealthier foods, are more at risk for cardiovascular disease. It's really important. We take seriously our downtime and allow ourselves time to have it. Um, two last questions. Um, you mentioned some of the creative ways that people can um, have uh, connect virtually, like sharing a recipe and, and watching TV together. Are there good resources out there that have compiled these creative ways to connect virtually? I'm sure there are. Um, I, I, I can't point to one um, specifically, but I'm absolutely certain there are. Uh, you know, in, in our home, uh, somebody wanted, had an idea of, let's, let's do a, a murder mystery uh, kind of uh, thing. And they found something that was, I think, posted in 2003 how to have a murder mystery dinner kind of thing. It was great. It was like a three hour thing. And it was like, it was, you know, all well, well produced. And it was simple, just printing out stuff and reading directions. There's a lot of resources online. Um, it's much easier for you if you look for them based on what interests you, what your passions and hobbies and, and, and mutual interests are, because that will direct you to activities in that domain. Our last question is, I'm currently pregnant and have also suffered the loss of a loved one. Do you have any tips for making time to both celebrate joy and finding time to grieve? Yes, first of all, I'm very sorry for your loss and I'm excited uh, for your arrival uh, when, that, when that happens. Um, I, I think it, that question was beautifully phrased because it is about finding time to do both and to do that discreetly. We are in a time of ritual. So I, I, I believe that if it's about grief, um, then ritualizing is a good way to do it. I'm not sure how, how you know, how fresh that grief is, but um, if it hasn't been done fully and, and of the reminders, if it's a year of firsts that you're uh, going through, so reach out to friends and say, hey, we're coming up in the month, Mark, I'd like to do a Zoom call in which we all reminisce about um, uh, this or have kind of some kind of ritual because this this person that you lost loved blank and so you're going to ask people to to uh, write about or to send in or to donate something or to you know in that whatever that blank is find find ways to ritualize that are discreet in other words not discreet like on this on the download discreet like specific so that there is a start and end time to that so that the grieving is contained within a certain window insofar as the ritual is obviously the grief itself is not but insofar as the ritual and then you can transition from from grief to the joy and to the anticipation and it's important for the people around you because they might be if they know that about you they're like uh how do we talk with her about that without the other how do we talk about the grief without the pregnancy about the pregnancy without the grief they are probably looking for guidance from you in terms of doing that. And so you, by 
um, you know, having those kinds of rituals or by letting people know today it's all about the pregnancy. And tomorrow I want to talk about this. So yesterday I was really, today I'm really upset. So I'm going to be upset. But tomorrow is going to be all about, uh, you know, decorating a baby room. And if you let people know, it'll be really helpful because when people don't know how to approach, they don't approach. And then you feel like, wow, they don't care. They just don't know. And so if you let them know, you, you, it might actually enhance the support on both fronts. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a fantastic conversation and again, so helpful and, and meaningful. So thanks so much. Guy Winch is a licensed psychologist and the author of several books, including How to Fix a Broken Heart. His new podcast is Dear Therapist. Pam Bellick is a health and science writer for the New York Times. She and her colleagues won a Pulitzer Prize in 2015 for their work on Ebola. Their conversation, part of the Murdoch Mind-Body-Spirit series at the Aspen Institute, was held July 30th. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin. It was programmed by the Aspen Community Programs team, which includes Zoe Brown, Katie Carlson, Crystal Logan, and Jillian Scott. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The Walton Family Foundation is, at its core, a family-led foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities. The foundation partners with others to make a difference in K-12 education, the environment, and its home region of northwest Arkansas and the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.